Hello and welcome to the second episode in the Scottish Centre for Global Histories podcast series on the British anti-apartheid movement. My name is Paul Finney and I am joined once again by fellow scholars of South Africa, Dr Matthew Graham and Dr Chris Fever. Last week we discussed the foundations of the AAM, focusing primarily on the early efforts of humanitarian volunteers and the politicisation of the movement after that crucial turning point of the Sharkville massacre. On today's episode, we're going to look at the functional dynamics of the anti-apartheid movement as it progressed into the 1970s and 80s. We'll examine the effectiveness of grassroots activism in creating a culture of exclusion around apartheid South Africa, primarily through sports and consumer boycotts. We're also going to take a look at the AAM's influence in global politics, focusing largely on the UN arms embargo and Britain's changing diplomatic relationships with the apartheid state. So Matt and Chris, thanks for joining me again. You know, last week we discussed the difficulties of the movement as it entered the 1970s. As the apartheid state strengthened and the movement faced an unsympathetic government in Britain, how was this movement able to increase their popularity and regenerate throughout the latter 1970s? So I think to answer that question, we need to split it up into two. And I'll focus on what's happening in South Africa during this period and to allow the listener to, to draw the links between the anti-apartheid movement externally and the events that are happening in South Africa and also Southern Africa to some extent. Last week we did obviously talk a little bit about how the anti-apartheid movement is reactive to the occurrences in South Africa. I think a big moment in the 1970s is the Soweto uprising in 1976 where students protesting against the implementation of Afrikaans as the medium of education are shot by the security forces in South Africa. It creates a massive crisis for the apartheid state. It also um, renews resistance in the country. We have a whole series of, of revolts that emerge out of the Soweto uprising, with many students inspired by the ideology of black consciousness. But also because of the violence and repression, many uh, young people flee South Africa, they join the ANC uh, in exile, which in turn reinvigorates the movement and also its armed wing, which then in turn allows for a challenge against the apartheid state. We also have in the 1980s reforms by the, by the apartheid government. In 1983, there is the tricameral parliament, which tries to divide and conquer much of the population and give uh, particular voting rights to the coloured and Indian population of South Africa, but also completely neglecting the interests of the black population. This creates the formation of the UDF, which is a new internal opposition movement. Through their activities and actions, there is growing uprisings um, across the 1980s, which sparks a state of emergency. So within South Africa, you have a, a growing resistance to apartheid, and this in itself becomes increasingly uh, antagonistic and more violent than at any other period beforehand. You should also mention the context of what South Africa is doing in Southern Africa. It is uh, currently, from the mid-1970s, at war with Angola, uh, which in turn leads to an ongoing conflict in the region and draws in the kind of Cold War powers and dynamics. And there's also the actions of the total strategy, which is um, apartheid's outward policy towards undermining the newly independent uh, nations of, of the region. So basically, what we have is growing repression uh, in South Africa, which in turn sparks greater resistance. And then there is also South, South Africa's violence in Southern Africa. All of this builds up a broader picture 
of the actions of the apartheid government and also the the desperation as well to maintain power uh, through force. Just in addition to what was happening in South Africa, and as you rightly pointed out, Paul, there's a change of government in Britain in 1979. Last week we talked about how the anti-apartheid movement had tried to lobby the British government and had limited success but had had more success with various Labour governments at different times. But obviously Margaret Thatcher's government comes in in 1979 and she is steadfastly opposed to sanctions, which aligns with her broader economic views. She was extremely critical of the African National Congress, famously describing them as a typical terrorist organisation. So yeah, the, the context in Britain is difficult for the anti-party movement and we'll talk about in this episode how they still attempted to lobby the Thatcher government to influence sanctions and various different measures on South Africa. But actually, the rise of Thatcherism in Britain also inadvertently stimulated activism in Britain. Because of her stance was viewed as so pro-apartheid, this sort of generated anger among the British population. Also, there were broader struggles against the Thatcher government. Think about trade union struggles, minor strikes, etc. And um, those other groups who were fighting their own battles with Thatcher also progressively became more involved with the anti-party struggle as this broader movement against the Thatcher government. So I think the key point about Thatcher is that, yes, her government was unsympathetic to the anti-party movement, but actually its steadfast support for the apartheid regime actually inadvertently stimulated activism in Britain. Both of you touched on a really important point there, both within the South African government and within the British government. Uh, it's this idea that complete repression of the aims of the ANC and the anti-apartheid movement bolstered the activism throughout the later 1970s. So given that if there had been moral reprehension at the South African government with uh, limited liberal reforms, slowly degrading the, the apartheid state, do you think the, the anti-apartheid movement would have had the success that it had if it didn't face such hostile governments both within Britain and in South Africa. I think if we look at the two periods, last week one of the reasons that the anti-party movement struggled in this, this decade was because there was less opposition within South Africa to, to apartheid. I mean, you had the Black Consciousness Movement in the 1970s and the rise of trade unions, but it, the ANC itself it wasn't an active force and obviously the anti-party movement had, had attached itself to the ANC. If you look at that period and the difficulties the anti-party movement had, coupled with the fact that they had Labour governments at different times, which were seen as more sympathetic towards the anti-apartheid movement and did limited measures. So I think, yeah, if you compare the two periods, definitely I think these, this changing circumstances of increased repression in South Africa and hostility to the anti-apartheid movement's aims and goals from the British government is absolutely critical to understanding how the anti-apartheid movement manages to shift itself from a sort of smallish, but consistent pressure group into one of the largest international solidarity movements in British history. Matt, you mentioned Soweto. What was the influence of student uprisings in South Africa connecting with the anti-apartheid movement more generally in Britain, but more specifically towards the student movements in Britain? I mean, you've definitely got the symbolism of Soweto. I mean, these are school kids in their uniforms being shot by the police. I mean, these images were broadcast all over the world, and there is the extremely famous picture of Hector Peterson being uh, being carried as he's lifeless. This, in turn, creates public moral outrage, and also becomes a site of commemoration and martyrdom 
from there on in. One thing that connecting to the anti-apartheid movement in the UK is that students are a strong bedrock of anti-apartheid movement activists. There, there are um, branches on, on university campuses all over the UK and many of the activists then move into the upper echelons of the anti-apartheid movement into the 1980s. So again, we do see a, a connection there. I mean, I wouldn't make Soweto directly connected to the student movements in the UK, but we can see how there are um, that there are connectors um, which allow for pressure uh, to build and also for the movement to grow out of that. Okay, so I'd like to go back in time to the end of last week's discussion when we started talking about the boycott campaigns, particularly in culture and sport through the Stop the 70s tour. This seems to be a turning point for the anti-apartheid movement where they've moved their focus to popular culture rather than just political and economic questions. Can you give us a bit more detail about what this protest was and what it symbolised for the wider anti-apartheid struggle? The, the first, before we go into the Stop the 70 tour campaign, I think the first thing we should do is discuss why sport was seen as important by the anti-apartheid movement. It's mainly because of its importance to the Africana population. Sports like rugby, cricket, etc. provided the Africanas an opportunity to compete on a global stage and they were extremely successful as, as rugby sides and as cricket sides. So it was a way of getting to the Africana population, particularly as the South African government was limiting the amount of information about the level of protest in the global context. So this was a way of bypassing essentially the South African media. I think as well that sports one of those things that it allows you to reach a different audience. So we talked about reaching the Afrikaner audience. It also was important in Britain too because it allowed the anti-apartheid movement to reach out to sectors of society that may not have been as interested in international politics and would not have joined political organisations. So it was a way of getting that message out to them. A lot of the sports activism that we'll probably discuss attracted a lot of media attention as well. So it brought a lot of national attention to this issue of apartheid and anti-apartheid. I think that's the key context to understanding why the anti-apartheid movement targets sport as one of its key boycotts. With regard to Stop the 70s tour, there's a bit of background to this in 1968-69, there's the Basil D'Oliveira Fair. Basil D'Oliveira is a coloured South African who emigrates to Britain in 1960 and participates in English cricket. Extremely successful career in the 1960s. And then by the time we get to 1968-69, there's an upcoming tour of South Africa. It's widely expected that D'Oliveira will feature in the English side, but he is unexpectedly excluded from the squad. And this was seen as an, an attempt to placate the apartheid regime, which was opposed to Basil D'Oliveira competing in South Africa for England because of his race. Eventually, there's an injury. Basil D'Oliveira is now then put back into the side, largely due to his ability, obviously, but also public pressure about his initial exclusion. And eventually the tour doesn't go ahead because the apartheid regime are so angered by this decision. So that's a bit of context. In 1969, there's a South African rugby tour of Britain. And it's a campaign which is largely organised by the Young Liberals and people like Peter Hayne, who became the face of this campaign, decided to disrupt this tour 
and to, to demonstrate to the South African population their opposition to apartheid. And they used various tactics. Uh, they would cut up the pitch, they would throw glass onto the pitch. If they weren't able to do that, they were in the stadiums, booing the South African team. There was pitch invasions, conflicts with the police. And it just created a public spectacle and drew public attention to this issue of apartheid and racial segregation in South African sport. Because of the protests in 1969 with the Springbok Tour, this leads into an attempt to stop the 1970 cricket tour of England the following year. There's various elements to this campaign, but the protests which emerged in 1969 continue into 1970. The Labour government is so concerned by this protest that they eventually step in and cancel the tour. This is quite a significant victory for anti-apartheid forces. It wasn't strictly an anti-apartheid movement campaign. As I say, it was started by the Young Liberals. It was an important victory for anti-apartheid forces within Britain to get the British government to step in and cancel this white South African cricket tour in 1970. Just on that as well, when we're talking about cultural exclusion, you mentioned that that bypassed official media channels, but did that also bypass political questions of apartheid and limit it to questions of exclusion in sport, or did it still maintain a political impact influence in the direction of the apartheid state? So I think that's a good question and I think some people would like to think that sport is completely divorced from its political and social context and these campaigns clearly demonstrated that apartheid affected the way in which people could participate in organized sport. Basically because of the color of your skin you could not play rugby or cricket for the Springboks. And so it was it was making this connection that sport is political and sport is very much a product of its social uh, setting that allows for the various anti-apartheid groups to build a groundswell of opposition to um, apartheid. Now it should be mentioned that the, the, yeah, the British rugby authorities had really close ties with the Afrikaner establishment and actually it took a lot of effort to persuade them to change their attitudes and their actions. You should also remember as well that the British government would actually regularly debate this in the Houses of Parliament. That there are transcripts talking about this. So we, so we did get a wide range of political interest. That doesn't though necessarily mean that it actually had a political effect. And so I think we have to, again, disassociate the, the elements of these campaigns. But if, if we're linking it to South Africa, I mean, again, the South African state makes statements about the, the touring uh, countries, but they don't change their actions because of these protests. And even for, for many white South Africans, it doesn't really change their, their mindsets either. That said, it does mean that in a very public way, white South African society knows how the rest of the world thinks about them. And as the, as the decades pass by, an increasing number of South Africans do get frustrated that they cannot play uh, against other nations in particularly rugby, but also cricket. This exp I mean, it's expanded to the Olympics in 1964. Basically, South Africa is being excluded from sports systematically around the world. And it might not have had a political effect, but it definitely does have some effect on how people thought about themselves and about how they acted. One thing I would just add to what Matt said there about the impact of the sports boycotts on the Africana population. I think the Stop the 70 Tour is quite an interesting example because Peter Hain himself, who was the face of that campaign, becomes a bit of a hate figure among the Africana community in South Africa. In the mid-1970s, there's a prosecution 
taken out against Peter Hayne, funded by white South Africans who had sort of associated him with the opening of the sports boycott. I think in terms of an impact, it had a, a significant impact on the morale of the Africana population. But what we also do see, though, it does begin to have impact within the Commonwealth, for example. In 1977, there's the Glen Eagles Agreement, where the Commonwealth nations, with notable protests from Britain, basically argued and discouraged that, that their citizens should not compete uh, with South Africans. And this then became a very kind of public face of things because the Commonwealth Games, for example, become a target for, for political opposition. I mean, and a really good example is the 1986 Games in Edinburgh, where Zola Budd is trying to compete for the UK. And this creates protest because she's South African. So, and we see Commonwealth nations joining together and targeting sport as a way of, of enacting some changes. So 32 countries boycott these games, which basically means that there are fast, really, that, that almost half the nations that can compete do not compete. So it grows into a broader support base. One thing I would just finally say on the impact of, of this is there was a poll in the mid to late 1970s of white South Africans and asked them what were some of the things they disliked about apartheid. An inability to compete within international sport was in the top three. That just gives it a bit of context. As much as we're talking about the boycotts and the campaigns, there were repeated attempts to circumvent the sporting boycott of South Africa throughout the 1970s and 1980s. And actually the South African sporting authorities and government paid significant sums of money to international sports stars to put together what were called rebel tours. They paid lucrative money to play cricket or rugby in South Africa. As much as it did have an impact on the Africana population and also it raised the profile of anti-apartheid in Britain, but there were also attempts to, to circumvent it. You both raised really crucial points there on the importance of sport and creating a foundational exclusion of South Africa more generally. It seems like the anti-apartheid movement and uh, people like Peter Hayne and the Young Liberals couldn't directly influence politics from the upper levels, so they had to create this foundational base that was so strong among the masses and the most effective way to do it is to connect with them through something that they have an emotional attachment to such as sport in Britain. The question of the Afrikaner community worked on two levels. It seems that in Britain those working with the Stop the 70s tour managed to make the moral reprehension of apartheid so obvious that it couldn't be publicly supported in the ways that political figures on, on the right may have done it. And within the Afrikaner community, if they, if they didn't provide a solution to apartheid on the race question, then we could find ways that that directly influenced the Afrikaner community. So just to add, just a touch more detail to your great point there, is that if you look at the propaganda campaigns and the posters in particular put forward by the anti-apartheid, it really gives you a sense of of how they were trying to make those linkages. So, uh, for example, in Stop the 70 tour, there is a police officer with a baton attacking some defenseless people. And it says, if you could see their national sport, you might be less keen to see their cricket. In 1986, there was another one which showed some people playing rugby and it says no links with South African blood sports. So again, really making those connections abundantly clear. And, and really playing upon the minds of the British public in particular. To sit up and take notice. And, and again, linking that, that moral um, and kind of cultural connections. Yeah, I think the move to publicise the ways in which sport was intrinsically connected to the apartheid state and the Afrikaner sense of identity 
was probably the most foundational aspect of anti-apartheid activism in the early 1970s, you know, when we don't have these big moments like Sharkville or Soweto, which are, are so visceral that people are instantly emotionally connected to it. I think that was a really effective way to draw an emotional connection against apartheid without any of these major cataclysmic effects. So moving beyond the Stop the 70s tour and the explosion of sport in South Africa, I'd like to look at the ways in which the anti-apartheid movement in the 1970s put pressure on multinational corporations, most notably Shell and Barclays, to withdraw their investments from South Africa. How did they apply this pressure and, and how effective were these boycotts? So, I mean, if you remember back to last week, we talked about the origins of the anti-apartheid movement lying in the boycott movement. And so the boycotting of products and linking British consumerism to ethical and moral choices is a long-lasting legacy of the anti-apartheid movement and something it really focuses upon. So it it is basically politicising consumerism, which is, I think, a fundamental element of this. And the boycotts did allow people to take a stand against apartheid without actually having to join the political movement. All you had to do was not buy a South African orange or not buy South African wine. So in that sense, it allowed people to feel like they were having an impact on a much broader scale, yet not having to be a paid up member of the anti-apartheid movement. And this is something we must bear in mind as well, is that the anti-apartheid movement had way more supporters than it did have members. But the consumer boycotts occurred all over the UK. Small grocery shops through to uh, big companies like Tesco and Sainsbury's were targeted. I mean, in Scotland, William Lowe's was often a focal point. Basically, there was a weekly picket on a Saturday morning. So again, very visual campaign, but this allowed the movement to build up its support base and also to allow it then to begin to challenge other elements of British consumer activity. Boycotts themselves were really symbolic and an anti-apartheid movement opinion poll in the mid to late 1980s suggested that 27% of the population boycotted South African goods actively and by 1986 um, fruit and veg imports had dropped by eight and a half percent from South Africa. So again you can see some impact that it had in terms of the consumer boycotts. Before we went into the shell uh, and Barclays, I think that's, that's a key point to make because most people will associate the anti-apartheid movement with its consumer boycotts. And so we can then delve into some of their specific campaigns by looking at Barclays and Shell through disinvestment. Picking up on Matt's point there about um, broader disinvestment and sanctions campaign, and last week I talked about how the anti-apartheid movement, particularly as the British government was reluctant to impose economic sanctions and concerned about the ramifications on the economy, it started to focus on, on companies and companies that had subsidiaries in South Africa. And last week we talked about the challenges that the anti-party movement faced concerning this idea of constructive engagement, where these companies argued that, yes, we're opposed to apartheid, but we believe that rather than sanctions, um, that we are going to try and change things from within, i.e. paying black South African workers more wages, outlawing segregation in their workplaces. So that, that continues into the 1970s and 1980s. It is made difficult by the fact that Margaret Thatcher is so opposed to economic sanctions herself and various attempts, both within the Commonwealth, within the European community. So this, that's probably another key contextual factor that we should have mentioned as well, is that progressively over the 1970s and 1980s, Britain is, is tilting towards the European community, European Union more, particularly with its economic links. And this not diminishes 
South Africa's importance to Britain, but it wasn't as key as it had been in the 60s and and early 70s, and progressively that changed. But as you say, anti-apartheid movement targeted multinational corporations like Barclays Shell. They also targeted other institutions like universities, churches, trade unions, particularly their investments that they were making and making sure that they were not inadvertently perhaps through something like a pension fund had interest in South Africa. So they targeted them on different levels. There was a lot of shareholder activism and we'll talk about this with the Barclays campaign in particular in Shell where anti-apartheid activists would buy up shares in some of these multinational corporations which would then allow them to get into the annual general meetings of these different um, companies and they could then raise apartheid as an issue in, the, in these meetings and make it quite uncomfortable for some of the directors of these organisations. That was a key part of it. And I think things like protests, say, around these companies and their connections to South Africa was key in the 1970s and 1980s to this issue of sanctions and disinvestment. So when we think about the Barclays in in particular, um, they are the British bank with the largest subsidiary in South Africa, something that Chris mentioned a moment ago. And so Barclays um, are deeply entwined with some of the activities and investments of the South African state. So one of the, the first major campaigns is around the Kabora Bassa Dam project in Mozambique, which at the time Mozambique was still a white minority state. And you could see the links that apartheid uh, was trying to bolster with its neighboring nations. So again, this becomes a, a focal point for some of the activism to show the tentacles of white minority rule and racism in Southern Africa. But Barclays does become um, a a key part of the anti-apartheid movement's mobilisation and also specific targeting of a company. Their key focus is on students. So linking actually back to something that you said earlier in the podcast. But the anti-apartheid movement focuses on the, the starter bank accounts of students. Now, students don't bring in that much money, but if you graduate and go on into good employment that means mortgages loans all those kind of associated products for a loss forever Um, and so by 1985 Barclays share of the student market had declined from 23% to 13% and when Barclays withdrew from South Africa in 1986 they actually acknowledged the impact of the anti-apartheid activities in their decision to withdraw so again it shows you how a faceless corporation could actually be forced to change its actions dependent on this kind of consumer activity and linking the moral and ethical dimensions to business practices. And it forces many businesses to, to reconsider how they do things. I mean, at least rhetorically anyway. The other, the other one would be Shell. Shell is helping South Africa get around an oil embargo. Um, and so again, this company is helping them buy oil from oil exp- exporting countries and then selling it on to the South African state. In the USA, the Netherlands and Britain, there was an international campaign by different anti-apartheid movements to to really focus on the activities of Shell as an organisation. Again, speaking to anti-apartheid movement activists, um, they would turn up on Shell forecourts across the UK with like model tanks and um, just cause like an absolute scene and kind of get people to consider to not buy their petrol or diesel from Shell. I mean, Chris mentioned about the AGMs, uh, 1987, Shell made every shareholder have one vote. So it meant that the anti-apartheid movement bought up a, a load of uh, single shares and they could took over the workings of this company. 
Building on what Matt said then about Shell and Barclays, and although we've identified these campaigns, the anti-partiment was actively investigating any institution, as I said, mentioned earlier, universities, um, church, churches, etc., who had investments in South Africa, and they were very effective identifying this, therefore putting pressure on. But I think just to give this discussion a bit more context is that san economic sanctions, although there was resistance from people like Margaret Thatcher, were implemented in the 1970s and into and particularly in the 1980s. So the EU or European Community at the time imposed sanctions on things like steel and iron and the Commonwealth was also imposing sanctions. The South African economy in the 1980s is very much reliant on foreign loans to sustain itself essentially and over the 1980s banks are increasingly reluctant to lend to them because of these loans it had built up a lot of foreign debt and a lot of these banks were increasingly reluctant partly because of the pressure that they were under from a grassroots level, I mean, among other, other factors as well, reluctant to roll over these debts. So what you get by the night, progressively over the 1980s, is an apartheid economy which is in crisis. It's part of the reason why in the late 80s um, and into the 1990s, the apartheid government decides to, to begin negotiations with the African National Congress to, to, to end apartheid. I mean, you both mentioned loads of crucial points there. Um, just picking up on two of them, this idea again of the evolution of the anti-apartheid movement and its ability to bypass political spheres did the ability to work with multinational corporations help the anti-apartheid movement get around this issue of particular nation states and secondly it seems as if during the the 1970s and 1980s companies are increasingly concerned about their pr did the anti-apartheid movement keep checks upon multinational corporations and upon neoliberalism more generally to sort of say, and if you're saying that the apartheid state is contrary to neoliberal values, then you must live up to, to these concerns. And us in the West, who are primarily shareholders and buyers of your pro product, then have agency over the decisions that you're going to make internationally. I think that's a couple of really interesting questions there, Paul. I think what sprung to mind, with particularly the second question about the impact that the anti-party movement may have been having on multinationals, is quite an interesting one. And I think definitely, I think it created this broader climate whereby to be seen as collaborating with apartheid or um, pro-apartheid was just not was not good. For business and that and that demonstrates the level of public awareness of the apartheid issue and the level of sort of anti-apartheid sentiment within the country added to that pressure that was being built by the anti-apartheid movement i think they, this context in south africa is, is quite an, it's quite an important one because south africa um, as we said last week in the 1960s and 1970s is seen as a pretty stable place for western interests to be aligned to but by the 1980s when you have all this internal resistance well, the states of emergency in the mid-1980s, it's not as much of a safe investment anymore. And that also contributes to companies' reluctance to, or willingness to sort of set aside um, their investments in, in South Africa. So I think it's a combination of pressure in the Western world, not just in Britain, but in America in particular as well, but also the changing context in South Africa and how that influences multinationals. Just adding to what Chris just said there is look at some, again, look at the posters that they, they produce and they essentially use these companies advertising campaigns against them. So there's like Coke sweetens apartheid or Shell fuels South Africa. So again, 
using their imagery against them. And I think that's a very important part of the PR uh, process and showing the interconnectedness of the globalized world, especially by the 1980s. We also must appreciate the, the power of the nation state. It does decrease and the rise of businesses obviously increases in this period too. So again, linking it back to your first question, it does mean that there are alternative points of resistance and challenge in this globalized world to apartheid. So yes, they are continuing to focus on lobbying the British government. Yes, they're going to continue demanding the change at the United Nations, but they're also seeking other opportunities to create a holistic picture to target uh, the elements of South Africa and, and trying to isolate it in every possible way. And the thing is, we're trying, trying to say in this podcast today, they are isolating South Africa on almost every single level that you can imagine it to be. Moving beyond these multinational corporations, a, a major focal point of them seems to have been the selling of British arms to the, the apartheid South African government. So could you talk a bit more about that and how the anti-apartheid movement mounted an opposition to these British uh, arms relations with South Africa? Sure. So, I mean, there, there have been voluntary arms embargoes at various points in the period that we're talking about. But again, this is the, the post-Soweto uprising context, is that the world really like takes a, a, keen, a keen awareness of what is happening within South Africa. So there's a, um, a UN arms embargo in 1977, which becomes mandatory. So again, really trying to um, tighten the, um, the opportunities available to um, apartheid to uh, arm itself. Now, I should make it very clear is that there are constant efforts to break this arms embargo. And a fantastic book I recommend everyone to go and read um, is called Apartheid, Guns and Money, which actually shows that the web of interconnectedness uh, of the National Party security apparatus um, seeking ways in which it can overcome many of these different boycotts. But basically, there is a a focus on the companies that are either directly selling arms to South Africa or selling components that could be converted into arms. Because one of the ways the South African state tries to get around it is by what is known as civilian technology. Um, and then through the use of kind of specialist training um, to convert these, mater these materials into military hardware. In the 1980s, South Africa secretly develops a nuclear weapons program. And again, there, there is part of the awareness raising around this. Um, and this is also linked to the CND campaigns in the UK as well. But it's demonstrating every point where South Africa was trying to break the, the arms embargo and also those people that were willing to help them. The anti-apartheid movement did research. Um, and so basically it's trying to enforce the mandatory embargo and so those individuals or companies that may be involved in it. So um, again, the realization, that oppression of black South Africans obviously needs the, the military hardware. And so it's therefore targeting that element of the repressive apartheid state. How did the anti-apartheid movement change their strategy in arms embargoes and sanctions? With the consumer boycott, it seems that the, the consumer in the West, an extensive agency over companies like Shell, companies like Barclays, Coca-Cola, because products that they were buying had a direct influence on 
um, these companies' profits each year. With the arms relations, that seems to be not as much the case. That seems to be reserved for higher questions of international politics and not so much concerned with the morality of the individual consumer. So how did the anti-apartheid movement evolve their campaigning strategy to deal with the question of the arms relations? And I think it's important to remember as well that despite the Thatcher government um, being sort of unsympathetic to sort of the anti-apartheid, anti-apartheid movement did continue to lobby throughout the 1970s and 1980s and met Thatcher in the mid-1980s as well. Sort of shows the level of opposition within the country as well that she, that she was willing to, to, to do that. So I think they lobbied hard on this, particularly if they... Again, Matt mentioned research, and anti-apartheid movement was, was really effective at identifying links um, discovered that there was a breach of the arms embargo. They would lobby the British government to make them aware of this, and then hopefully they hoped that the British government would then act to stop this. So I think lobbying was, was key to this. I think it's safe to say that the latter half of the 1970s was characterised by the sanctions and boycotts and using the power of the individual consumer choices, as well as, like you mentioned there, Chris, as well as uh, meeting with government officials it was able to target multinational corporations and withdraw their investments. So we've kind of came to an isolation of South Africa on political, economic and cultural grounds. But as we enter the 1980s, we seem to be looking more at the particular events of what's going on in South Africa and drawing light onto them. Most notably, the Free Mandela campaign, which was arguably the, the most notable campaign of the whole anti-apartheid movement. How did this movement set about raising awareness and support for Nelson Mandela whilst he was in prison? So I think we should first start with some of the context of the cultural elements, and then we can uh, specify a little bit more about Nelson Mandela. So. Again, we're creating this holistic picture of what the anti-apartheid movement is doing and seeking to achieve. So this is you know, focusing on, on music, academia, literature, what have you. Uh, and for example, there is a UN register of entertainers and actors who have formed in uh, apartheid South Africa. And this is to, again, shame these people, um, but also to try and prevent them from then playing or performing in the UK as well. So it's like, if you take uh, South Africa's dollar, then we will not allow you to earn money in the UK so or in the US. So for example, I mean, there's a series of really high profile people on this UN register. So people like Shirley Bassey, Queen, Rod Stewart, Dolly Parton. There is a series of very well-known people on this UN uh, register, which again goes into the point of trying to um, continually isolate South Africa. And so one thing that I'm, I'm sure we're going to talk about is that Man the Mandela campaign is deeply rooted with, within music. So you have the activities of the 1970s, which is the rock against racism, where people are really trying to use music as a way to change attitudes and cultural understandings. Uh, you then also have things like the band The Specials, aka, who wrote and performed a song called Free Nelson Mandela. And then you also have the Artists Against Apartheid at Clapham Common in 1986, where 250,000 people attend. So clearly music is becoming part and parcel of the way in which the, the movement can draw people into uh, taking action or at least acknowledging what is going on in South Africa. So culture is a much broader part of the picture, which the Nelson Mandela um, Freedom Campaign actually fits within. Yeah, just the other aspect of 
the Nelson Mandela campaign, obviously culture is key as well. It's also to situate Mandela campaign in the 80s within a longer context of political prisoner campaigns as well. This is another aspect of the anti-apartheid movement's tactics and um, strategies that, we, that we've touched on briefly. But yeah, uh, protests around people in South Africa who were imprisoned by the apartheid state. It goes back to the mid-1950s with the, with the treason trial, the Bonia trial. So there's this long history of political prisoners' campaigns, which dates back longer than the 70s and 80s. And that's part of the background to how the Mandela campaign comes about. The actual initiative to focus on Mandela comes out of South Africa in the, mid, the late 1970s. And I actually think it's Robben Island it was debated about whether international campaigns should be built around Nelson Mandela's freedom um, as a sort of figurehead of, of political prisoners. And there was some concern about that at the time, about what potential problems of individualising a much larger struggle. And there's an initiative to, in South Africa, I think it's the Sunday Post newspaper, starts a petition in the late 1970s for Nelson Mandela's release. The UN Special Committee Against Apartheid, which is was formed in the early 60s to act as, as a pressure group within inside the, the United Nations to push for things like sanctions and raise awareness about apartheid and, and link with the anti-apartheid movement. And the British anti-apartheid movement had quite a good relationship with um, UN Special Committee. And they had an initiative to celebrate Mandela's 60th birthday in the late 1970s. And, and that's sort of related in, into the late 1970s and into the 1980s, where there's a, a real drive by the anti-apartheid movement and its supporters to push for the freedom, freedom of Nelson Mandela. Part of the, the strategies and, and tactics around this campaign generally revolved around things like the renaming of streets, streets in Mandela's honour. There was also the Freedom of the City Award. And, and at this point, probably worth noting um, the role that Scotland played in the Nelson Mandela Freedom Campaign, which I would argue is a, an extremely prominent aspect of, the, of the, the British campaign. But Glasgow in 1981 becomes the first city in the world to grant Nelson Mandela freedom of the city. And as we discussed last week, Mandela was widely seen as a terrorist in the British society in the 1970s. So it wasn't an uncontroversial decision to say the least, and there was plenty of opposition to it. But I think that sort of set a precedent for Scotland and Glasgow in particular's role in this drive to free Mandela. And it should be mentioned as well, there were other Scottish cities that took similar actions around the freedom of the city. Dundee was one in 1985. Aberdeen was actually the only city to give it to both Nelson Mandela and Winnie Mandela. And Midlothian gave freedom of the city to Nelson Mandela. Actually, out of nine cities in total that gave Nelson Mandela freedom of the city before his release, uh, four were in Scotland. So I think that just demonstrates the, the role that Scotland plays in this campaign. I think it's quite important to mention. Thanks, guys. Some crucial points there raised on Mandela being used as a popular figure. But there was also an opposition to Mandela's position within the ANC, especially among the upper echelons of power. Could you speak a bit more about the cleavages within British society on their perception of Mandela and his position more broadly within the anti-apartheid struggle? Something that we'll talk about in the following podcast is obviously the legacy of Nelson Mandela, but for some listeners, they might be surprised to hear that there is actually quite a contested legacy about this person, especially as he so dominates the narrative. So to take the first part of your question, I mean, the, the British state identify him as a terrorist. Margaret Thatcher openly says this. Um, and even while Nelson Mandela was um, president of uh, South Africa, he was still on the um, USA's terrorist watch list. So again, it shows you the long impact of this. So those views and positions 
emanate from his time in jail because he went to jail for treason at the head of Umkonte Wizizwe, the armed wing of South Africa. So you can see how some of those narratives play within the kind of rhetoric of the Cold War. And also there's various other movements around the world seeking independence and freedom, which are also labeled as terrorist organizations. So the ANC fits into this global nexus of movements. I must admit, I don't think that they were a terrorist organization. So I want to make that very clear. Um, but that is one of the things that was, was mooted within the British state. So again, you look at the parliamentary papers or the, the public utterings by the Conservative Party in the 1980s. And it is about they do not negotiate with terrorists. Nelson Mandela is someone who is in jail for terrorism. With the Mandela Wembley concert in 1988, there is a big kerfuffle about the BBC actually showing this because many of the right-wing Tory MPs believe that they should, the BBC should not showing this because it would be in support of a organisation that uses violence. Just adding to that, Chris, did, did these changing perceptions reflect the growing cleavages within British society at this time. You have predominantly working class areas in support of them and predominantly upper class areas regarding them as a terrorist. Did these play into the social politics of the time within Britain? I'm not sure if they neatly followed the pattern of, of things like working class support and, and sort of upper class uh, not support. I mean, definitely the politicisation of British politics in the 1980s brought on by Thatcherism is a, is a key element here. And you generally had those who were on the right, as Matt, as Matt just mentioned, were opposed to Mandela getting all these honours and af- after him. And there was those on the left who were obviously supportive as well. I mean, I think it's interesting, like the anti-party movement is often criticised for being a largely white middle class movement. And it did, obviously, trade unions become a key part of this uh, in the 1980s. And they become absolutely... I don't think I can understate how important they were to the anti-party movement's continued survival in this period. And they come in quite big on the Mandela campaign in particular, but also other aspects. So yeah, I think there is this broader politicisation of society and right and left. But I think by focusing on Mandela, it got around these political differences, not to everyone, obviously, but, this, but even by the end of the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher was pressuring the clerk to release Nelson Mandela. So there was a sense that Nelson Mandela was someone that was significant to the transition away from a party which people had increasingly accepted. I think that Mandela himself, and it comes back to the point we made last week about the moral dimensions of anti-party activism, and the Mandela campaign fitted in with that quite neatly because he was a guy who'd been in jail for his entire life. He'd missed out on so much in terms of his personal life as well to be in jail and character as well stimulated broad-based support for him. Obviously, there was those on the right who still saw him as terrorists, but there was quite a, a broadening of support for the anti-party movement, and the Mandela campaign is key to that. And, his, and as I say, his character is central to this in the sense that he is portrayed as this, this um, unifying figure, and it's helped by events like um, in 1985 when the South African government offered him conditional release, and then he rejects this, and his daughter reads out his reasons for that. Um, in 1985. So that's, those moments are quite key in building up this image of, of Mandela as this sort of prominent figure, unifying figure. And also because he's in jail, he can't speak for himself as well. So there's, a, it's, there's an ability to project onto him people's own ideals of what, what he was like. And actually when he comes out, maybe talk about this a bit last week, but people were actually concerned that um, would he live up to the, the billing that people had sort of projected onto him in the 1980s through these campaigns. So yeah, so I think, no, there was broadening support for the Nelson Mandela campaign and his release. Obviously, there were these political aspects to it as well, and there was opposition to it as well. But I think in, as the 1980s 
progressed, there was a genuine general consensus that he would have to be released and would play an important part in the transition. Your crucial points that you raised there, Chris, was that firstly, enough time had passed that Mandela could be largely cleared of any of the more controversial acts of the ANC. You also raised the point of there being almost universal support, which grew over time throughout the 1980s and continued to grow throughout his legacy. It just brings me to this last question, which is is more generally about everything we've discussed today. And do you think the increasing repression uh, within the British state of the anti-apartheid movement and and the uh, decreasing support of the anti-apartheid movement within the upper echelons of power, do you think that strengthened the anti-apartheid movement's case overall or was largely inhibitive of it? I think the anti-apartheid movement's case in the 1980s is is definitely strengthened by the opposition of the the British government. I think as well it plays out in the Mandela campaign as well because those on the right were seen as less keen for him to be released and to a lot of people it was so obvious that he should be part of the solution going forward. So I think about that escalating resistance into Africa which is absolutely central and it's, it's something when we talk about the anti-apartheid movement, we shouldn't forget that they played a part, that it was a part within a broader movement, which was led by the people of South Africa. So the resistance within South Africa is, is absolutely essential here, as well as the situation in Britain, which is, as we've talked about in this podcast, and the resistance of the British government stimulated um, further activism. So I think, yeah, without that, it's, it certainly wouldn't have transpired as it did, and perhaps support would have been less. I, I don't know, but... Definitely, the stance of the British government certainly had a, a big impact on sort of support for anti-apartheid. Yeah, Chris, I think you touched on one of the most important issues there that I'd just like to end on, is that repression definitely bred resistance throughout the anti-apartheid movement in all spheres with the, the sanctions, the boycotts and the Free Mandela campaign. All of these movements were bolstered by the lack of support or the limited support among the higher uh, echelons of power and the multinational corporations that either refused to cooperate with the anti-apartheid movement or gave limited reforms. And the anti-apartheid movement were able to pick out the contradictions and hypocrisies at each step of the way, whether it be sport, consumerism or the Free Mandela campaign. So I'd, I'd like to end it there. For next week, we'll go on to discuss more specifically about the Free Mandela campaign and Nelson Mandela's legacy more broadly. I'd also like us to discuss next week the legacy of the anti-apartheid movement for activism and the growth of transnational advocacy networks and the globalisation of activism throughout the 20th and 21st century as a result of the foundations that were laid by the anti-apartheid movement. So Matt and Chris, thanks again for joining me and I'll see you guys next week. Thanks very much. Thanks,